First you will come to the sirens, who enchant all who come near them. If anyone unwarily draws in too close and hears the singing of the sirens, his wife and children will never welcome him home again, for they sit in a green field and warble him to death with the sweetness of their song. There is a great heap of dead men's bones lying all around, with the flesh still rotting off them. They met the things on the little island with the queer ruins, and it seems them awful pictures of frog fish monsters was supposed to be pictures of these things. Maybe they was the kind of critters as got all the mermaid stories and such started. They had all kinds of cities on the sea bottom, and this island was heaved up from thar. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you recognize what those sources were, you probably can tell. We're going to be talking about some mer creatures, some sea folks, something like that today. That's right. Uh, the first was from Homer's The Odyssey, the Samuel Butler translation. The second was from H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Now, there is always an alluring quality to the idea that there's stuff happening down at the bottom of the ocean that has more than just an animal quality, but some kind of intelligence or organizing principle to it. I think of in the George R. R. Martin books, there's this character. Do you remember this guy, Robert, who is like a court jester in the in Stannis uh, Baratheon's court, who's always singing about what happens under the bottom of the sea. No, I've forgotten about this. Oh, uh, well, he like falls in the water at some point and gets rescued. And after that, he's always saying like under the sea that I don't remember what he says, but it's like they have feet, you know, people, people walk upside down on their hands. <laughs> and then he always says, I know, I know, ho, ho, ho. And it's kind of mysterious. Oh, yeah. This does ring a bell now. Uh, well, you know, before even before we had proper mirrors. The, uh, the the ocean was kind of the looking glass, right? It was kind of the, the mirror world. Yeah, so any of those stories where you wonder if there's actually some kind of creature living on the other side of the mirror, if that's another universe we're peering through into, all of that applies to the water as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you think of all the various specimens, the mermaids, the gillmen, the sirens. It's fascinating that humans have seemingly always dreamt up humanoids from the deep. Not just monsters, but humanoids. Yeah, I mean, because you can certainly expand it and get into the whole realm of sea monsters and various uh, animal-fish hybrids. But there's something particular about those humanoid or partially humanoid creatures, a mirror world beneath the waves and people of some sort that occupy the depths. Yeah, I mean, even before you had somebody like Giordano Bruno imagining that there could be other planets with surfaces like our planet that could have creatures dwelling on them, you know, when people didn't really have that conception of the sky, you could still definitely wonder about something like that under the ocean. That was like sort of the first outer space. It was the original alien world. Yeah, indeed. And without a real means of exploring it or understanding it, you were just left with whatever happened to swim up within view, whatever happened to wash up dead and you know, partially uh, rotted away on the shoreline, whatever you were able to pull up with, uh, with line or net. 
Dude, the stuff that washes up dead on the beaches of the earth is terrifying and crazy now, even though we have like photos and modern science. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you imagine that happening in a world where, you know, the, the New Jersey beach monster washes up, but it's in the Middle Ages in China or something? Yeah, it's actually really fascinating to look back, uh, particularly at a lot of the sea monster illustrations and old maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a book by uh, Chet Van Duzer, Sea Monsters of Medieval and Renaissance Maps, and and he's he it's filled with wonderful illustrations but you get to look at at all these various creatures you know that some fairly realistic you can look at and say well that's clearly supposed to be a walrus that's supposed to be a whale it just has too many blowholes and some of them you look at and you realize well this is essentially what you might see if you saw the partially decomposed body of a whale something enormous but a little more beaked looking now, in that book, Van Duzer points out that few maps survive from antiquity, but th- there are map-like mentions and map-like artifacts, such as uh, there's an Assyrian frieze from the palace of King Sargon II, uh, early 8th century BCE, that clearly depicts two Assyrian mermen. And it's great because if you've ever seen Assyrian reliefs or carvings before, they've they've all got the same head. You know, mm-hmm. it's all that same guy with the same curly beard and the hat. And these mermaids are like that, too. Yeah. And then you, you look in other ancient uh, writings. I mean, they're, they're mentioned in Ovid, uh, Ovid's writing, the, the Metamorphosis. Ovid lived uh, 43 BCE to 17 or 18 uh, CE, and he described the the gates of the Palace of the Sun as containing all of these uh, images of people. The dark blue sea contains the gods, Melodius Triton, Shifting Proteus, uh, Aegean, crushing two huge whales together, his arms across their backs, and Doris with her daughters, some seen swimming, some sitting on rocks drying their sea-green hair, some riding the backs of fish. And you can you can keep going back in time too. I mean, as Nancy uh, Easterlin pointed out in her 2001 paper, Hans Christian Andersen's Fish Out of Water, the Babylonians recognized gods with fish features or fish uh, hybridity. Yeah, you can sort of see this as an extension of the way that early creation myths and ancient gods often had water aspects yes. like uh, like Tiamat and Absu, you know, the, the fresh water and the salt water or the idea of the creation stories, which almost always involve waters, right? You know, yeah. the, the chaos hover or uh, the being hovering out over the waters. Yeah, calling back to our Order Out of Chaos episode. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about uh, Inki as well before, the Sumerian water god, yeah. which is sometimes described – it's sometimes described as having a, a cloak of a fish or scaled skin. Wait, a cloak of a fish or a cloak made out of multiple fish or – One of the images I saw, it looked like a cloak of little fish icons, like it, like the cloak was made out of fish emoticons. That's good. It's pretty great. That's um, amazing. And, and get this, the ziggurat uh, where – where people would worship uh, Inki was known as House of the Subterranean Waters. Hmm. Well, that seems to sort of complete the ziggurat trinity because uh, we, we've talked about ziggurats before. The, the ziggurat uh, Etimenanki, which was sometimes believed to be associated with the historical idea of the Tower of Babel, I think that name means something like the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Nice. A very regal-sounding ziggurat, as if there's another kind of ziggurat. Right. Now, additionally, we have a... <laughs> this is just kind of a humble ziggurat. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing. If it's going to be a ziggurat, it's going to be a ziggurat. Yeah. Now, additionally, we have, we have fish-tailed gods and water dragons found throughout the cultures of India, China, and Japan. And uh, Nancy, Nancy Easterlin sums up a lot of this nicely. She says, quote, Some of the mythological sea beings and deities, such as Poseidon and the Sirens, were not originally associated with water. 
and uh, Piscean anatomy. The sirens were originally birds, indicating that divine power and womanly allure became combined with the power and promise of the sea when ancient cultures undertook maritime war and trade. So she argues that the that merfolk and mermaids, uh, all these creatures, they're ultimately the descendants, or in her words, the scaled-down descendants, which I like because mm-hmm. of scales. Uh, oh. These are just the, the, the scaled-down descendants of ancient sea gods. Yeah, that seems like uh, one example of the principle that displaced gods or, or fading gods of older theologies often appear in sort of lower status or demoted roles in newer versions of religions. Yeah, the, the old trope of the former pagan god becomes a, a demon in, in medieval Christian tradition. Yeah. So obviously we're talking about merfolk, water-dwelling humanoids of various kinds today. And this is going to be the first part of a two-part episode. Uh, the first one here, we want to discuss the sort of global merfolk mythology and all of the different ideas of humanoids living in the deep and what that says about us culturally and where these ideas come from. And then in the next episode, we're going to focus more on the science of aquatic humanoids. Yeah, so this is going to be the mythology and fiction episode, and the next one will be the the science and speculative uh, science episode. Now, Robert, one of the first ones you mentioned was the sirens, that's right. Yeah. I mean, when we, we had the reading from the Odyssey uh, at the, the start of the episode that refers to them. But one thing you'll notice is that there was no description of the sirens. Yeah. What do they look like? Well, we don't know because Homer never actually describes them. Uh, they were later described, though, as being half bird, much like the harpy. Hmm. And uh, later periods of development merged them with the northern mermaid in Christian Europe. But medieval bestiaries uh, stuck to the bird hybridity, though, up through at least 1220. And then you had this uh, gentleman, Isidore of Seville, who lived uh, 560 through 636 CE. And he attributed them with scales and webbed feet and sometimes tails and wings as well. But from the Middle Ages onward, that's where the sirens really took on the mermaid look and it stuck. I'm trying to think of depictions of them I've seen in movies, but I don't think I have. The only thing that comes to mind is, oh, brother, where art thou? But in yeah. that, they're not hybrids. They're just humans that are – but they are in a creek bed. That's right. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the depictions that, that I'm accustomed to, mainly through the – I had the, the Time Life uh, book series of uh, <laughs> myths and monsters or myths and legends. Okay. And uh, there was there were some siren images in there and a lot of them were just – basically beautiful women out on rocks mm-hmm. luring the 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 wide-eyed uh, uh, greek sailors to their doom now of course if you're not familiar with the story it's that the sirens would sing right right and that their singing was so lovely that it would drive men mad and it would and they would want to come ashore to meet the sirens i guess or be drawn to the singing but instead their vessels would be dashed upon the rocks right yeah and in, in uh, various accounts of the sirens uh they vary like maybe you'd starve to death or you perhaps you'd drown. I guess the basic underlying reality of the myth is the ocean is a dangerous place. Right. And if you go out upon the the, the, the ocean, you might meet your doom. I always thought that what Odysseus does in the, the story of his encounter with the sirens was an interesting sort of metaphor for the, the ways some people experiment with mind-altering substances, mm-hmm. which is that he has his men lash him to the ship's mast so that he can't control, you know, he can't drive the ship into the rocks. But all the other men plug their ears and he wants to hear it. They are so, all the designated drivers. Yes. Uh, though in a sense he's the designated driver because he is the only one who can tell them when they're out of the, the siren's range. Right. But uh, 
but but yeah, they're they're all uh, plugged up. He's the one that's uh, that's there, uh, roped to the mast, mm-hmm. begging to be let free. And they're under strict orders that the more I beg, the more you need to rope me to the mast. Right. Now another interesting uh, uh, individual or race, depending on how you look at it, from uh, Greek mythology. The, the Triton. So okay. Triton was originally a specific mer person. It's but it, uh, Ariel's father, right? Is was that his name in the cartoon? In the Disney movie, oh, okay. wasn't it? I thought, I thought you just saw a Little Mermaid themed show in Florida. I, didn't I you? did, but it was at Wikiwachi, which uh, is the the long running mermaid show there, and the. Underwater uh, dancing is a, a very limited storytelling medium, and uh, I don't think her father ever showed up in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's his name. I remember this from childhood. The okay. guy with the big beard and the trident, okay. the, the mare man king, he, he's King Triton. Oh, okay. I, 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 I definitely remember him, but I, I didn't remember his name. Well, uh, the Tritons eventually became seen as just a class of people in Greek myth. They were the sons of Poseidon and Amphitrite. They had humanoid bodies covered in scales, and then they had dolphin tails. Matted green or yellow hair. They had gills as well as pointed kind of elf ears. Wide mouths, fangs, and they, they typically would serve as escorts for the uh, Nereid sea nymphs as well as general attendants for sea divinity. Mm-hmm. And uh, our old friend uh, Hesiod said that they inhabited golden palaces under the sea. Now it sounds like King Triton. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this is key to so many of our our, our myths and legends of mer people. Now I'm wondering. This is kind of interesting that it's combining features of the the, the House of Ichthos, right? It's got the scales mm-hmm. and the fish like characteristics, but then they've also got dolphin tails. So there's this melding of aquatic mammals and fish. Well, of course, you have to remember that for the longest time, this was not a clear distinction, the idea that, that dolphins were not fish. Right. So uh, you know, it makes sense that you would just mesh it all up under miscellaneous sea beasts. Oh, and also in medieval times, uh, tritons were made the male counterparts of sirens. The male counterparts as in like they were the same species or like they they were just friends or what? My understanding is that it's like they were of the same species if one dares to get too technical – uh, with your your, your mythological peoples uh, under the waves. Mm-hmm. And I think this will be very interesting later on when we discuss modern treatments of mermaids and fish people. Okay, so fangs, scales, dolphin tails, humanoid characteristics, that's not enough hybridity for me. I want you to mash in some more stuff. Well, you're in luck, Joe, because uh, there there's another creature to consider here, the ichthyocentaur. So good. Yes. So you had something called a centaurotriton, which was basically – what occurs when you have a triton that's depicted with like, like a definite uh, dolphin-esque uh, hindquarters okay. region. But then the ichthyocentaur takes the hybridity to a whole nother level. So we see this in around the 3rd century uh, common era, and uh, this is found in, in the natural history text uh, uh, Physiologists. Uh, and uh, this creature, the ichthyocentaur, was said to have the torso and head of a man, okay. the four legs of a horse or lion, All right. the hindquarters of a dolphin, mm-hmm. and unlike the centaurotriton, they had scales. <laughs> now, I'm so imagining what kind of habitat this creature dwells in. When would it be useful to have the four legs of a horse and the tail of a dolphin? Uh, well, I mean, you could really tease that apart and get into, I guess, the symbolic meaning of the things. Uh-huh. Or you you end up coming back to your idea of, like, here's something washed up on the beach. 
make sense of it. And, well, this is kind of the story that ends up spreading about it. Uh, there are no classical accounts of the ichthyocentaur, according to the resources I was looking at, but mm-hmm. they remained a decorative motif, uh, which is kind of the ultimate fate of a lot of these, like the mermaid and the uh, and the triton and the ichthyocentaur. They become just part of uh, medieval iconography going forward, and they come to symbolize other things, the mermaid particular uh, becoming to symbolize just sort of the, the, the evil and monstrous nature of the female, uh, sometimes depicted, uh, I believe, with a, with a fish to show that she is uh, entrapping uh, the Christian soul. Yeah, I often think of the tradition of the mermaid as being one of, of temptation, mm-hmm. like that it, uh, it establishes kind of like a foolish and weak-willed sailor uh, that will give in to the temptation of the mermaid because he has not properly disciplined his spirit to resist sin. It reminds me a lot of the, uh, the incubi and succubi legends we've discussed in the podcast before where the feet would be a giveaway. The feet would be the feet of a beast. And therefore, any any rational uh, believer would notice the feet uh, of the creature and and just and, and cease to pursue the, this foolish uh, um, uh, pairing. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting parallel. Like yeah. they both go back to this idea of the sinner as someone who's oblivious to difference. Yeah, like they can't see all the the, the warning signs here. Uh, the main warning sign, of course, being that the individual is part fish. All right. Well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss more aquatic humanoid legends from around the world. All right. We're back. So not every mer person in uh, mythology and, and legend is a villain. Uh, sometimes you see some that uh, that have beneficial aspects as well. There's, for instance, the the uh, the Nino of uh, Japanese legend. This is essentially less of a, a mermaid and more of just a fish with a beautiful woman's face. Okay. And it's protective and warns of misfortune on land and sea. And then there's also uh, an interesting one from uh, the Mi'kmaq uh, people of uh, eastern Canada. Uh, they were known as the, the halfway people, uh, these particular merfolk. They had the upper bodies of a hu- body of a human and the lower body of a fish. And they'd warn fishermen of coming storms or invoke storms if they were disrespected. Now, I have to add another North American or Canadian entry, uh, less folkloric and more of a one-off, but I'm adding it because I've seen this in person. Robert, the Banff Merman. (laughs) You've looked up images, right? I did. I was not familiar with this. And I'd, of course, heard of the Fiji Mermaid. uh, And I've never been to Banff, but Uh I'm familiar with it. You've talked about your adventures there. Uh And it does not seem like a likely... A mermaid destination. No, not really. I mean, so this is inland Canada. This is in Alberta and Banff mm-hmm. National Park. So this is a, a mountainous region, not a not a, a coastal region, but it has lakes. And so in in these lakes, I guess one might expect to find some kind of hybrid humanoid aquatic creature. And so inside this business in Banff in Alberta, there is a little store called the Indian Trading Company. And in the back of the store, there is a taxidermied creature. That's half fish, half humanoid gremlin. <laughs> and it looks like – I don't know how would you describe it. Like the back of it just looks straight up like a fish. It's a fish with the head cut off. Mm-hmm. And then that fish just goes straight into some ribs with with like human baby arms but with claws on them and a scary looking head that has hair. Yes. <laughs> 
I, I mean, it looks like a, a taxidermied creation. I mean, that is what it is. It yes. Is a, it is a fish and probably some sort of a, a small monkey that uh, the remains of which were, were sewn together. Yeah. Or the – I think it's also possible that the top half of it could just be artificial. Ah, like it yes. could be a, a crafted artifact. According to a write-up on Atlas Obscura, it was probably bought by a man named Norman Luxton, who is the proprietor of the shop around 1915 when it was when it first showed up there. Uh, it's very much in the traditional of like the P.T. Barnum kind of thing, the, the Fiji mermaid. Yeah, so some kind of a sideshow oddity sort of thing. Yeah, except it it stays right here in this uh, <laughs> in this store. I don't know how long it's been totally stationary there, but yeah, if you go to Banff and you go to the store and you go into the back room, you'll see lots of oddities. There is like a giant taxidermied bear, I think, and some moose heads and other local stuff. But uh, yeah, this thing's in a glass case. It's got a mirror behind it, and they sell postcards. Ah. It's like I saw the Banff Merman. Interesting. Well, that's, that's I've got to check that out uh, when I finally get up to Banff. Now, speaking of, of Canadian, we can sort of uh, extend that and think of, uh, of French uh, traditions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a mermaid in French uh, traditions known as uh, Melusine. And much like Echidna, the, the mother of monsters in Greek myth, mm-hmm. the French mermaid here boasts a two-pronged tail. Oh, you know what that reminds me of? Ah. Dagon. Well, yeah, I thought you were going to say Starbucks. But yes, also the movie, <laughs> the Stuart uh, Gordon movie Dagon that came out in 2001. It's kind of a mixed bag. Not, yeah. a, not a great movie, but there's some things to like about it. Yeah, it's a, a Lovecraftian, uh, like it's basically an adaptation of Shadow Over Innsmouth. Mm-hmm. But with they lean into the mermaids a little more. They lean into the sex and violence a little more. Uh, it's worth checking out if you like violent fish people movies. Yeah. But what about Starbucks? Starbucks? Well, it, just coffee, basically. But that, but that that logo with the mermaid uh, with the two pronged tail uh, uh, with uh, going up on each side of the creature, like that's basically uh, melusine or echidna, depending on how you want to look at it. Robert, I hate to say it, but I don't think anybody ever pays attention to that logo unless they're trying to get mad about it or not having a Santa hat or something. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting if people started getting mad over that. It's like, why does this mermaid have two tails instead of one? Right. We want an American mermaid, not a French mermaid. Right. One tail. <laughs> One country, one tale. Well, they're probably, uh, you know, pining for the classic uh, mermaid, the uh, the Havfru, the the Danish uh, uh, mermaid. Why is this the classic? Well, you know, because when you when you really think about mermaids, you think of like Hans Christian Andersen, you think of Northern Europe. Oh, so to be clear, Hans Christian Andersen is the author of the the Little Mermaid story yes, yeah. that the. Disney movies loosely based on, very loosely, because mm-hmm. in his version, there's a lot more like blood and cutting off feet and stuff. Oh, yes. It's a bit a bit more violent. But but over in Denmark, they did have the Havfru, and uh, this is a, it's a, it's a pretty helpful mermaid because it can also tell the future, and it allegedly foretold the birth of uh, Danish king Christian IV of Denmark. So it's, it's, a, it's a beneficial mermaid for you. Okay. And, of course, I have to mention the monkfish. Are you familiar with the monkfish or perhaps it's kin, the, the bishopfish? Well, I know of the monkfish like the monkfish, but you're not thinking of like the monkfish that you would eat, right? This, is a, this was a, a creature, widely reported marine creature in northern European waters, described in Ambrose Pare's 16th century work on monsters. It had the head of a human, uh, the tonsured hairstyle of a monk, a monk's cowl and cape, and two extremely long flippers. 
it's it's a ridiculous looking creature. It looks like uh, you drew a, a monk as a fish. It's I know what you're talking about now. As yeah. It sounds. I've seen the, the mid- medieval drawings. Yeah. But uh, the cool thing is that there's a very strong case to be made that these were based on descriptions of dead giant squid, hmm. because you have this kind of uh, you know thick, lumpy body that kind of tapers off on one end and then has what, a a number of tentacles and then two very long uh, additional arms uh, that uh, would have been the the two extremely long flippers of the monkfish. Yeah, I'm looking at the comparisons right now. I can see why that would have been the case. And there was also a Chinese variant of this, the Hai Ho Sheng, which was the sea Buddhist priest. So, uh, again, we're getting back to the idea of when, when you're talking about a mythical sea creature, there are a number of different ways to look at it. You know, is it a former god that's been demoted? Is it a dead sea animal that you, that someone has misinterpreted and then someone else has heard about that? And then that person told another individual who illustrated it and wrote it in a, in a medieval beastery. It, uh, these are just a few of the possible excuses for many of these fantastic uh, creatures. So is there anything that seems to unite all of the legends we've looked at so far? Or are aquatic humanoids as diverse as real humans? Or as diverse as other gods and monsters? Well, there's always the sense of the familiar yet alien. Yeah. And the sense that it's uh, – well, lots of lots of monsters are familiar yet alien, but that they come from another world. Mm, the aquatic yes. humanoids do. Yes, they are familiar yet yet foreign. They are something. They're they're people from the other side of the mirror. Yeah, I've got another one. Maybe let me know what you think about this. When I think of ocean dwelling humanoids mm-hmm. in mythology and fiction, they don't usually seem to be like party hard kind of gods or party hard monsters or, or humanoids. They usually seem kind of sad. Yeah. There, there's a kind of melancholy that we associate with the underwater life and the ocean that may come from the sad faces of fish. Is I don't know if that's too crazy of a stretch. When I look at fish faces, I, I tend to project emotions on them. And those emotions are never like happiness. Fish faces always look a little bit sad, like they're disappointed in something, uh, like they wish things were going better. Well, it, it comes back to the old saying, a fish out of water as well, right? There's nothing more awkward than a creature that has been taken from its natural habitat and thrown uh, into another. Uh, the fish out of water is a thing that is uh, vulnerable, perhaps doomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it is in shock. And uh, and therefore, I think we, we do see that a lot with our merfolk uh, of, uh, of various designs in our, our myths and our fictions. Yeah. Sad fish faces and also also kind of a shadowy realm, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the underwater world for these underwater humanoids is another world, but it's the world that the sun is on the opposite side of the barrier from. Like yeah. the sun is all ours and the sun they get is just what filters down through the through the membrane of the water surface. Yeah, but then sometimes there are depictions again the golden cities of the the Tritons. Yeah, I guess so, that's true. So there is a sense of uh, of of the glorious, but also this sense of just sort of alien hard work as well. Like uh-huh. I mean maybe I'm projecting more about you know, what what we know from covering uh, uh, aquatic uh, biology and just the the aquatic habitat knowing that it is such a a place of uh, of intense uh, competition. You know, when I think of the the ultimate melancholy underwater humanoids, I got to go to the Universal Monster movies. 
it's the Gill Man. Yeah, the the Gill Man. I mean, I, I imagine most of the people listening to this podcast grew up with the Gill Man. Right. Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Yeah. Part of the classic universal monster movie canon, except the Gill Man was different from a lot of the others in that unlike Dracula or Frankenstein, which had been the subject of novels of horror and science fiction at the time, the Gill Man was, though a synthesis of many of these uh, human merfolk kind of traditions, was not from like a novel that existed. Right. It's uh, and there are other interesting facts about it too. Like for instance, unlike Frankenstein or Dracula or the Mummy, uh, the Gill Man was a was a product of the natural world. Yeah. It was just a product of the natural world that no longer had a place in the modern world. And that's why it often gets classed as a science fiction movie instead of a horror movie. Yeah, though the science <laughs> discusses uh, is rather uh, rather sketchy. Oh, the science <laughs> is even better in the sequel, Revenge of the Creature. We should get to that in a few minutes. Yeah, I I, I grew up with the, with the this monster, like I'm sure you did. I remember mm-hmm. having I had the little glow in the dark figurine of it as a kid. Uh, I had these uh, Universal trading cards that uh, had been my dad's that had all these uh, Universal monsters and some horrible jokes on them. You people at home, Robert has brought these cards <laughs> in. I think we should read a couple of the jokes on the back of them. Oh, okay, you go for it, Joe. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll play along. Okay, joke on the first one. So the first one shows the Gill Man on the front. It mm-hmm. said. Did you say fish for dinner? Anyone I know? Uh, yuck, yuck, he's yuck. A fish. Uh, and then on the back, it's got this. First ghost, colon, we just had a baby. Second ghost, colon, congratulations. Was it a ghoul or a boy? Uh, see, that's, that's some, that's some straight up Crypt Keeper humor right there. That's, that's pretty good. I got an even better one. So the front is the the creature, but it's from the third movie, The Creature Walks Among Us, mm-hmm. when he sort of gets turned into a regular human. And the back has a joke that says, what's a cowardly skeleton? I don't know, Joe. What's a cowardly skeleton? A boned chicken. Hmm. See, I boned think that, chicken. that's probably a, a joke that we would get if this were the early 1960s. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do not get it. Chicken. <laughs> oh man, there's this whole world of butchery jokes that we just <laughs> don't have access to. But it's great, you know, because this is a joke that that no longer fits into our time, and that's basically the idea of the creature. And I, I think one of the it, it's telling that the creature continues to be celebrated despite the fact that there has not really been a Creature from the Black Lagoon movie since the original trilogy, but he, he's taken on this sort of outsider icon status. Yeah, I'm really mortified for the time when they come in to remake Creature from the Black Lagoon. I, I don't want it. I don't I don't think we're ready. Yeah, the really, I mean, Guillermo del Toro's The, the Shape of Water, uh, which uh, just came out uh, at Christmas, mm-hmm. that's really the best possible Creature from the Black Lagoon remake, uh, even though it is not officially Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. No, I'm talking about like the Tom Cruise Mummy Universe <laughs> remakes where it would be like uh, what Benedict Cumberbatch as the Gill Man and then <laughs> – He'd make who, a good Gill Man. Who would play the lugs who show up in the lagoon and start poking him with stuff? Oh, I don't know. Just You can just – point a scatter gun at an IMDb page, I guess, you'll, you'll get uh, some candidates. So when did you first see the Gill Man on screen? 
Um, I, you know, I think before I saw any of the movies, I was introduced to it in 1982's It Came From Hollywood. Ah, that's a great one. Yeah, it's a, basically just a bunch of old movie trailers uh, stitched together with some, at, at times, delightful jokes, at times, cringeworthy jokes, mm-hmm. and various uh, celebrity uh, guest spots uh, from like Cheech and Chong, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, they were principals on this project. Mm-hmm. They, it, they highlight a great uh, brain attack scenes. Yes, yeah, there's a whole section on gorilla movies. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a wonderful film. It's hard to find these days because I think the some of the rights issues uh, prevent it from being properly distributed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you don't see the Gill Man showing up in repeated uh, uses throughout other films the same way you do like Bela Lugosi's version of Dracula or the Frankenstein monster. Exactly. Now, one of the things though about the Gill Man to really to, to bring it back to some of these themes we're discussing here though. Is that that outsider aspect? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the idea that there's something sympathetic uh, and yet other, or depending on how you're looking at it, threatening and yet other. And when you start teasing the Gilman apart, there are some really unsettling dimensions to the creature. Mm-hmm. The the same can certainly be said of H.P. Lovecraft's 1936 story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which uh, which is uh, which of, of course was published. Before the the creature came to our cinemas, uh, and is kind of a like a proto creature uh, short story. Mm-hmm. It's got aquatic humanoids, right? It does. It has a whole race of aquatic humanoids that end up uh, interbreeding with this uh, rural uh, uh, fishing and trade community, uh, and and that is like the the horror of the piece. It's yeah. the idea that there are fish people and humans are breeding with them. And, you know, I, I first read this uh, as a 1936 story. I read it in 96 for the first time. And uh, and I remember being like really um, uh, just blown over by it. I thought it was just such a, a creepy um, uh, atmospheric tale. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, it's a little more disturbing the more one reads about it and the, one, the more one knows about Lovecraft and his uh, – his uh, sentiments towards uh, other peoples and other races. Yeah. Lovecraft was very imaginative, but he was not a nice person. No. Uh, you know, sometimes excuses are made for him. This is a guy that, le- that uh, lived 1890 through 1937. And some people defend him by saying, oh, well, you know, he was a product of his time, mm-hmm. as, as we all are. Uh, but he's definitely a man with some very problematic views on race, especially for modern uh, modern readers. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even if we're to leave out his personal letters and so forth, his fiction often falls back on the trend of championing a white English culture over everything else. And we see the other races sometimes depicted as as just outright monstrous. You often get the sense for him that any non-Anglo ethnic groups are sort of allied with the monsters. Yeah, there's something like threatening and debilitative about them in his work. Um you know, there's a lot to unpack in Innsmouth. And again, it, in many ways, it is a tremendous short story. It was highly influential. But uh, as uh, Evan Lampe discusses uh, in his paper, in praise of the Innsmouth look, nautical terror and the specter of Atlantic history in H.P. Lovecraft's fiction, you can compare it to Lovecraft's earlier story, The Dunwich Horror, which uh, presents a town with a, quote, degraded population of ignorant, backward, physically stunted villagers. This, uh, again, encapsulating his Lovecraft's uh, uh, anxieties concerning not only other races, but even just like other like classes of people. Mm-hmm. 
uh, w- within the, the United States. Uh, but uh, Lampe points out that, quote, the fall of Dunwich is a result of racial decline brought on by isolation, which is a source of terror in the narrative. But in Innsmouth, it's not isolation, but contact with distant lands via Atlantic commerce that serves as their undoing. Hmm. So Lampe says, quote, Innsmouth's degradation is a result of its worldliness, not its isolation. Even if the city became a backwater, it looked out to the Atlantic for much of its history, open to the world, its ideas and its people. So in some ways, the creatures from the sea here are standing in for contact and intercourse with other cultures, right? Yeah. And, it, and that sort of works for the sea because the sea is traditionally like a way for cultures to come together. It's the, you know, the trade routes are th- through the sea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that's what, what makes the, 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 the story so, so icky if you read it with all of this in mind is that it's a tale that's describing the adoption of, uh, of, of other cultures and certainly with the, the, the interbreeding of, with other cultures as being something that is inherently monstrous, that, uh, uh, that, that, that white Anglo-Saxon people should not venture out in, either you know, mentally or certainly physically or sexually. Yeah, this is a really troubling strain in Lovecraft's work, uh, especially since Lovecraft is so popular with so many people today, like for his monsters mm-hmm. and his settings and stuff. The, I feel like this is sort of like the, the part of him that nobody really wants to think about. Yeah, I mean, it can be difficult because, like I say, I grew up loving Lovecraft's work and I, I still have, have a strong affinity for 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 the the Lovecraftian vibe, you know, mm-hmm. for that weird fiction world and many of the older writers from the day. But, I mean, you can't stick your head in the sand uh, regarding the sensibilities that are, that are not only present in the individual behind the stories, but in the works themselves. Yeah. And so we got here from Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm wondering if this is leading to, to you thinking that some of the same themes can be ported over to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, you know, I, I didn't used to think so. I used to think that the the creature from the Black Lagoon was uh, was somehow separate from uh, from any real world uh, concerns. You know, it's kind of this. I mean, it's rated G for for goodness sake. <laughs> the, the first one, anyway. Uh, maybe the other two as well. But I distinctly remember seeing the G rating on the first film. It's essentially a Disney movie, yeah, uh, just with a murderous monster in it. Well, but before we get into any uh, racial aspects of the creature from the Black Lagoon, we should probably just take a moment to in- enjoy the uh, the existence of the film on its own merits. Quote from Q Magazine about Creature from the Black Lagoon. This horrendous pseudoscience fiction melodrama revolves wildly in three dimensions and with considerable excitement around a poor ancestral fish that never quite made the grade to man. All right. Well, that's that's pretty accurate, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's it's generally it's often looked looked at as one of the the lesser of the universal movies, though e- even though the monster itself is pretty great. Yeah, it might be the best universal monster in terms of makeup and stuff. Uh, well, I don't. I mean, it's that's debatable, I guess. It's certainly is more ambitious makeup wise than. I mean, Karloff's Frankenstein is a pretty amazing makeup creation. It's true. But does Frankenstein begin with the Big Bang? No, it doesn't. And Creature from the Black Lagoon sure does. It starts with a big explosion. It's sort of mm-hmm. the inverse of Bride of the Monster. Uh, starts with a big explosion. And their idea of what the Big Bang is is that it involved literally exploding chunks of rock. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it looks like a, like a, like a mining detonation. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, and they get into this whole narrative about how uh, the, the creature is a, a product of uh, the Devonian period from 60 million years ago. <laughs> okay. You know, it's uh, pretty old. The age of the, the, the trilobites. Yeah. You know? It's when they went extinct, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, you get the Dunkleosteus back then. That's right. And then they spend a lot of time talking about the lungfish. Uh, they, they sort of throw a lot of science at the screen early on to try and trick you, uh, uh, into thinking that this is a, like a scientifically accurate picture. Now, it was re- released in 3D. Did you ever see it in 3D, Robert? I never did, but that's right. They filmed the first two of these films in 3D. But a lot of people, even when it very first came out, saw it flat, mm-hmm. uh, because it was at the very end of the early 50s 3D craze that it was released. So it was already becoming passe. Ah. I actually rewatched this movie last night. If you ever get a chance to check out the Universal Monster movies set, uh, the remaster of Creature, it's got a great commentary track by horror mm-hmm. scholar Tom Weaver. And uh, I just wanted to mention a few things I learned from it, some really interesting highlights. Um, one of them was where did the story come from? Like wh- what is the origin of the creature? So the producer of Creature from the Black Lagoon was this guy named William Alland, who was the, he was the producer of the film. He was a universal producer at the time. And he made his start as an actor working with Orson Welles in the Orson Welles Theater Group. He was part of the infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Ah, yes. But he was also friends with Wells, and so sometimes, sometime in the 1940s, during the filming of Citizen Kane, Alland was an actor in Citizen Kane as well. He was uh, he was the reporter who was hunting down the meaning of the word rosebud, and so uh, Alland was over at Wells' house for a dinner party. Also in attendance was Dolores Del Rio, who was a Mexican actress who was uh, Orson Welles' partner at the time, and a Mexican cinematographer named Gabriel Figueroa, who would go on to a really stellar career. He was the cinematographer of things like The Pearl and John Huston's Night of the Iguana. And during this dinner party, the story goes, Figueroa starts in on this bizarre story about a half-man, half-fish creature that lived in the Amazon River near a certain village. And according to Figueroa's telling, once a year, the fish man would come up out of the river and claim one maiden from the village as its victim, and then it would retreat into the water, and the village would be safe again until it emerged the next year. Uh, apparently, at first, the other guests thought Figueroa was kidding, but he insisted and he started getting worked up because he wasn't being taken seriously. And he claimed the story was absolutely true and that he'd seen a photo of the Amazon fish man. Oh, wow. So this was early 40s. And despite how awkward of a dinner it must have been, <laughs> apparently the story must have stuck in the deep inside the mind of William Alland. And about 10 years later, when he was a producer at Universal, he decided to make a version of the Amazon fish man story into a new entry in the Universal Monster Movie canon. So he wrote up this three-page treatment of the film, which was supposed to start not with the Big Bang, but with a reenactment of his dinner conversation (laughs) with Figueroa. Oh, wow. uh, Followed by an expedition to the Amazon with a fishman creature. And, of course, he wanted to have a gorgeous blonde that would get kidnapped by the fishman. And then the rest of the story was basically just a ripoff of the plot of King Kong, but with a fish man instead of a giant ape. So they'd capture him, bring him back to civilization. He'd escape and, you know, run amok in the cities. And this this basically the territory they explore in the three creature movies. Yeah, if you put together the first creature from the Black Lagoon and the second movie, Revenge of the Creature, that mm-hmm. came out in 1955, the following year, together they are the plot of King Kong. Yeah. 
Now, one of the other things I love about the creature from the Black Lagoon is that uh, you had uh, – this is a product of Florida. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I've I've now been to some of these locations in Florida that are tied to it, such as Wakula Springs, mm-hmm. which I mentioned on the, the show before, a, a fabulous destination. That's where they shot a lot of the underwater stuff. Or yeah. I think maybe all of the underwater stuff. Well, I – if I'm, if memory serves, they, they certainly did all of the underwater stuff in the third movie there. I'm not as sure about the, the first one. Because mm-hmm. there are a number of different spring locations that are used in some of these, these films. Uh, and then they're tied into other, like, weird Florida places, like the Wikiwachi, uh, uh, mermaid show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie Adams' stunt double, uh, from the first film mm-hmm. was a mermaid swimmer at, uh, the Wikiwachi, uh, mermaid show. Oh, yeah, that's a great fact about the movie is that anytime you see the characters above water, they're played by different actors than the people who played them below water. So, like, the gill man above water was one actor they had in, in, uh, I guess in Hollywood. And then below the water, the Gilman was always this other guy, Rico Browning. Yes, yeah, a, a fascinating figure who's also come up on the uh, on the podcast before uh, because he worked uh, briefly with John C. Lilly. But, uh, but crazy, yeah, there's a crazy story there. Go back and listen to that episode if you want the details on that. But he was also tied to Wikiwachi and uh, really had quite a career outside of uh, of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, did you know that Rico Browning directed the underwater scenes that go on for 37 hours in <laughs> Thunderball? I, uh, I I read that the other day, but I, I wasn't aware of it previously, no. Oh, my God. When was the last time you saw Thunderball? I was a child watching it on TBS. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's one of those Sean Connery bonds. So it, it has parts that are kind of fun, but the underwater fight scenes are just interminable. <laughs> go on forever. But they're, I, I'm sure they're very well choreographed, especially for the time. I mean, shooting underwater back in the 50s and 60s was not easy. Yeah, I mean, if you accept them on their own terms, they're, they're kind of marvelous. It's just they don't necessarily match up to, uh, to, to modern cinematic pacing standards, I guess. Another thing that's kind of interesting to me about the Creature from the Black Lagoon that Weaver mentions in his commentary is that Creature has a lot of monster's eye view shots. And this is contrasted to some of the earlier Universal Monster movies and some of the other movies that Alan and Jack Arnold had done. I'm not sure if that says anything interesting about how they thought of the creature, but there is a lot in how the story was created and in how it's filmed that does, to me, make the creature kind of a sad, melancholy, sympathetic sort of character, unlike, say, Dracula, who is a predatory demon who right. arrives to, you know, to to consume people's souls and kill them and turn them into his servants. The creature from the Black Lagoon is a is a sad <laughs> creature who, who never really – I mean, like, he lives in the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. People come and invade his territory and then they start messing with him and attacking him and and he fights back. Now, of course, he does try to kidnap Julie Adams, the leading lady in the movie, presumably because he's wowed by her beauty. Um, and so it's a King Kong kind of thing. Right. He, you know, he, he falls in love and wants to carry her off to his cave. But you often get the sense in the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies that the real villains are like the human heroes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is something I, I, I picked up on as a kid, especially uh, the more I learned about and, and ultimately when I saw the third film. Uh, the creature walks among us because mm-hmm. in this one they've captured the creature, horribly burned it in the process, mm-hmm. and then they they treat the creature and there's this 
there's this hokey scientific explanation, basically Lamarckian uh, evolution, where the, the the creature's scales fall away and it has human flesh underneath and it's becoming more man-like. And there are all these just sad scenes of the this now land creature st- standing in this uh, little enclosed area surrounded by barbed wire, longing for the sea, but it can't even go back to the sea because it will drown if it does. Yeah. And uh, in, in all these films, it's like the – especially the, the white leads in the film – uh, like they're never really in peril. Like they're always in control. The mm-hmm. the, the creature just lumbers about, and uh, and the only reason it's able to to grab uh, uh, the lady is because she just stands there and screams instead right. of like walking away from it. Right. Yeah. Generally, the, the the human lead characters in these films are just not very sympathetic. They they're usually just coming into this monster's domain, or not. I mean, it's a creature. They're coming into the creature's domain, mm-hmm. and they in the second movie. They even they they fish for the creature with dynamite. They throw dynamite in the yeah. black lagoon. It blows him up, and he floats to the surface, stunned. And then they take him and they put him in a tank at SeaWorld and chain him to the bottom. And there's a great scene where somebody goes, I hope that chain holds. And the other guy goes, I wouldn't worry about that chain. (laughs) (laughs) So you see him like suffering and struggling and pulling at his chain and eventually he gets free and this is – and then runs around. And yet again, it's like the heroes of the movie are the real villains. It reminds me a lot of uh, the the late uh, great Gil Scott Heron had a bit, uh, kind of a stand-up bit, like a spoken word bit that he uh, did talking about Jaws. And he was saying like, why – why are you upset about Jaws attacking people? You're going where Jaws is. Mm-hmm. Like you should, you should only be upset if Jaws is attacking people in the city where where you are. Like you've gone where you're not supposed to be. So of course there's Jaws. All right, I think we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss more about aquatic humanoid legends and the creature from the Black Lagoon. All right, we're back. All right, so I mentioned earlier that I, I used to to think of the creature as being this. Mostly pure thing that was untouched by the concerns of the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was turned on to the uh, the commentary of Robin R. Means Coleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, partic- in particular, there was a, an episode of uh, the NPR podcast Code Switch mm-hmm. about the movie Get Out. And they talked about uh, some of the history of, of African-Americans in horror movies. Mm-hmm. So I ended up looking up um, uh, Coleman's book. Uh, it's titled uh, Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Film from the 1890s to the Present. And uh, and she she shares the following read on the creature. Quote, the Gill Man is Kong and Gus from The Birth of a Nation rolled into one impossible body. Bodily, the monster resembled a racist caricature. Its lips are large and exaggerated. Its skin is dark. It is seemingly feeble-minded. Its movements are shambling except for a swift, adept move uh, it displays when stealing away with a white woman. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, and side note, if anyone's not familiar, Gus, who she mentions here, is the antagonist from the 1915 movie The Birth of a Nation, uh, the film attributed to the revival of the Ku Klux Klan terrorist organization in the United States. Uh, in it, the Klan serve as heroes as they lynch an African-American named Gus, portrayed by a white actor in blackface who chases a white woman off of a bridge. Uh, Coleman refers to this as the first real racial horror movie. Hmm. And as Coleman points out, the creature from the, the Black Lagoon, uh, the film features a white female researcher who is only there to scream and serve as the object of desire. Yep. A team of local Brazilians who only serve to perish in the, uh, the first uh, portion of the film. Yeah. Uh, 
only and then only the white scientific elite are able to best the creature and uh and, and certainly best it they do the, these guys are supposed to be scientists but instead of studying it they just destroy it uh for the crime of making eyes at uh this white woman yeah again it's what we've been saying i mean they just show up in its lagoon and then they start attacking it essentially and we're it's we're, like we're supposed to feel bad for them yeah. I, I don't know i mean th- there's always this ambiguity in the monster movies of old, like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, where you get the sense that maybe you're supposed to feel some sympathy for the creature. It's not quite clear how much. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, this additional um, like racial read on everything just makes everything all the more problematic. Yeah. She argues that the film presents a world in which the white race alone has evolved and the rest are static. Hmm. She points to the work of uh, Patrick Gonder. Uh, who argues that the film isn't just about reinforcing white superiority and non-white inferiority. It's a film that taps into racist fears of desegregation. Quote, as the black monster in leaving its proper place in the water and attempting to integrate among those on land is a Darwinian reminder of why segregation is necessary. So, and, and I would argue that this is all the more unsettling uh, if, if you go into the third creature movie and watch it with these scenes of this this even more human-looking creature, like just behind barbed wire, just trapped, treated treated like an animal, even as you have these two uh, characters that are engaging in these monologues about the, the it's the jungle versus the stars, about how how we need to be kinder to the creature instead of violent towards it. It's 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 a very flawed and mishandled film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how the, this this read of uh, this racial read of the creature. Um, which some of you might not care for, but I think on one hand it meshes with uh, with with what was going on in the Shadow of Rinsmith. I think it also echoes a lot of these ideas that we've already discussed of the the aquatic humanoid as being this this other this uh, this uh, this creature that I mean think to the the Triton and the Siren like the Siren is beautiful and desirable the Triton though the masculine version is to be feared is more more brutal and that that lines up with uh, with various racist depictions in which the the female of another race is uh, is an exotic object of desire and then the male counterpart part is depicted as something brutish i'm not trying to ruin a classic film for anybody but uh, i i do think this this read is is really worth considering when you start thinking about about the era that the film came from mm-hmm. and uh, the attitudes of the of the time uh, and, and, and what that the film is supposed to say to a, a modern viewer. Yeah, I think that is a totally valid interpretive lens. I, I don't know of any evidence that this is what the filmmakers consciously had in mind. I think it's right. probably not, but that you can certainly see how these sorts of themes come out from, uh, you know, the, the, the unconscious forces that guide our creativity. Right. Very much so. So as we begin to close out this episode, let's let's return to just some of the trends that we've identified uh, and uh, skirted around uh, w- concerning the various myths and fictions of aquatic humanoids. Like, what do they what do they represent? What do they convey? Obviously, the mirror world. That's right. Yeah, uh, the unknown depths, as well as the the dangers of the sea. Mm-hmm. The feature we so often see in Legends of Monsters, which is hybridity, uh, bringing together different features of different animals and humans. Yeah, and just mysterious biology as well. Animals, uh, again, washing up on the beach, and also humans uh, with birth defects such as uh, uh, sirenomelia. 
which is a, a, a birth defect that involves uh, the fusing of the legs together. Mm. Uh, it's a really depressing topic. But I, ha- I, was, I have read a, a couple of papers making the argument that some mermaid legends might be based on these defects. Uh, also, we've m- mentioned uh, mermaids as harbingers of doom as well as uh, uh, sources of divine aid. There's the the idea that it's the erotic other, it's the monstrous other, the the evil or monstrous uh, feminine, and uh, and just the idea too that it, it it can be depicted as a racial other that that does not belong in our world. It's amazing that water has so much power to carry so much symbolic uh, weight and and to project so many different symbolic meanings. Like I'm thinking about the way it, it's this mirror world uh, in the creature from the Black Lagoon, but then also the way in Shadow Over Innsmouth it can represent the idea of commerce with the rest of the planet. Yeah, yeah. And you see, again, you, you can think of the golden cities in which uh, mer people are said to live, or you can just think of dark, depressing depths. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just p- proof positive again that there, there are no simple monsters. No matter how shallow you think a particular fictional or even mythological creature, uh, may be, when you start teasing it apart, there's, there's a lot going on there. There's a whole legacy that it's built upon. What's the name of, uh, the Cthulhu city? The city under the, uh, under the ocean where he's, where he hangs out? I believe it's Rillier or something to that effect. Yeah. I wonder how that compares to the to the Golden Palace of Triton. I'm thinking it's maybe a little darker, a little less uh, uh, less well lit, a little less golden. Totally random thought. Have you ever seen the coins that are the currency of Iceland? No. Do they have mermaids on them? No, I I haven't made it to the mermaid coins. Maybe at really high value they do. But uh, the the coins I remember there are great compared to our coins because our coins have like politicians on them, mm-hmm. and their coins have all the children of Dagon. So they've got crab coins, they've got <laughs> trout coins, like all of the sea creatures make oh, it onto yeah. the currency. It, that has to be better for teaching kids about money. Like my my son would uh, would would be far more into coins if they each had a cool animal on them. So take note, uh, nations of the world. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we're going to close out this episode, but there is going to be a follow-up episode in which we will discuss uh, some of the science of aquatic humanoids. Uh, And if you don't think there's any science there, well, just tune in and you'll be surprised. In the meantime, uh, check out all the previous episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find the podcast. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, you name it. Big thanks, as always, to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know what you think about this episode or any other, or to request future topics, or just to say hi or ask us a question, anything at all, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.